Psalm 94, a prayer of anger. I believe that I'll be right in saying that most of us have prayed, whether in joy or happiness or sadness and grief, in need or in want, in praise or in worship, or in confessing sin and repenting, or in other ways we have prayed. But how many of us here have prayed in anger following the example of the writer of Psalm 94? Have any of us prayed out of anger to a God who is a judge? Have we cried out in anger to a God who punishes evil? By anger, I do not mean that short burst of temper when something happens to us against our will. The kind of anger that rises up when someone, somebody or someone does something against us and we retaliate against them. No, the type of anger I am talking about is the anger we should feel inside us that occurs when we see injustice being done, when we see sin being done to assist in the systematic abuse of other people. The sort of anger that the church should have felt in Germany during the Second World War when the the creatures of the Nazi regime held mock trials of so-called criminals, such people as uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer for opposing the ungodly views of the state. The type of anger we should feel when we when we face today on our television screens when we see the pictures of the innocent victims of war in the Sudan, Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, Iraq or any other region where people abuse people for the sake of their own power and glory. The sort of anger that should make us cry tears of sadness and humility when faced with the utter poverty of the families living on the streets in the cities of the world. Cities such as New Delhi, Mexico City, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, or large tracts of Africa. George Bernard Shaw once described poverty as the greatest of all crimes. That deep-seated anger that should be amongst us as Christians when we see the oppressed and the poor being used and abused by those who are in positions of power to help them. We are all quite comfortable with the God of Psalm 93, the God of majesty, strength and magnificence, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the God who is mightier than the greatest seas, the God whose glorious holiness covers his house eternally. Yet something somehow makes us uncomfortable about praying to God for justice. Perhaps our view of God is just simply too small. For sure our God is a God of mercy, but he is also a God of justice. Our God is a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath. His written word affirms all these things. So the writer of the psalm calls and prays to God for justice, his justice, to be done that he, the judging God, might be glorified. Has the writer made this up? No, because God has himself described himself as judge and avenger. Genesis 18.25 or Deuteronomy 32.35 How many of us here have prayed for justice to be done? Perhaps we should pray on occasion for burden of injustice to be lifted off the poor and the oppressed peoples of this world.
But before we go any further on with this thought, let us consider together three things about Psalm 94. Firstly, to whom is the writer praying to? And we see that in verses 1 to 3. The obvious answer to this question is God. But what sort of God is he? Let's look at all the various descriptions given to us about God in this psalm. Verse 1, a God who avenges. To avenge is to seek revenge on behalf of somebody else. Here God is asked to avenge for the poor and innocent against the wicked and guilty people. A God who judges, verse 2. To judge is to decide which is right and which is wrong. Here God is asked to judge the wicked and guilty people for their wrongdoing. He is a God who created and creates, verse 9. He disciplines, verses 10 and 12. He teaches, verse 10 and 12. A God who knows all things, verse 11. Through omniscience. He's a God who relieves, verse 13. Assists, verse 14, 17, 18. He loves, verse 18. And supports, verse 18. He's a God who consoles, verse 19. And who is incorruptible, verse 20. The, the writer piles on metaphor upon metaphor. A God who is strong and dependable, verse 22. A God who is a refuge, again, verse 22. But he is also a God, according to verse 23, who repays and destroys evil people for their wickedness. So I ask you, is your vision of God still too small? Secondly, why is the writer praying? Verses 4 to 7. The writer is praying because he has seen the wickedness of mankind and has a deep inner anger against the brutality and evil deeds of the wicked. These people may not be foreigners, since many Jewish leaders were also brutal. Take, for example, the evil king Manasseh or the the cynics of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. What sort of things are these evil people doing and what sort of people are they? Arrogant and boastful, verse 4. Crushing, verse 5. Oppressing, slaying widows and foreigners, verse 6. Murdering orphans. The people who do this sort of thing are the object of the writer's anger. They are not only content to do evil deeds, but also had hard speeches, boasting, threatening and insulting the saints of God. The insults are used so often that they become a natural part of the language. That is the idea behind the phrase, pour out in verse 4. Words often wound more than swords. They are as hard to the heart as stones are to the flesh. And they are poured out by the ungodly against the godly. According to verse 4, They even talk to themselves and of themselves in spiritual arrogance, as if they were doing some good deed in crushing the poor and killing the widows, orphans and foreigners. Their error is that they believe that God cannot see their doings, and even if he could see, he wouldn't do anything about it anyway. These evil people who grind the people of God with oppression crush them with contempt, claim that God cannot see them, and so therefore reason that there is nothing to stop them from doing their evil works. There is no limit 
to the pride and arrogance of these wicked people, as they have lost their senses, verse 8, and therefore lost all common sense. It is natural for them to boast, just as it is natural for godly men and women to practice humility. The God of Jacob heard him and led him throughout his life, and said concerning Jacob, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Yet these proud and arrogant people proclaim boldly that God neither sees nor knows what we do. It is true that those whom God will destroy, he leaves to the madness of their own corrupt hearts. So what is God going to do? In verse 14 is the answer to the question posed in verse 5. The Lord God, Yahweh, has not rejected his own people. He has not forsaken those who are his. To do this would go against God's very nature. As his inheritance, God has marked out all those who are his saints. God takes a peculiar interest in their well-being and delights in them. He has an eternal covenant with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. Will God not defend his people? In verse 14 we have the answer. The Lord will not withdraw his love or leave people totally on their own against the evil persecutors. For a while he may leave them he may leave them with the, the design to benefit them, yet he will never utterly destroy them. He will discipline his people, but never destroy them. In verse 15, the great judge will come, the reign of righteousness will begin, justice will be done, and then all the godly people will rejoice. The vehicle of right will be driven down the streets of evil, and all those who are upright in heart will follow it in joyous procession. Are we, as the people of God today, following the path of righteousness, or are we trampling somehow on the poor and the oppressed? Are we keeping silent when we should be speaking out? Some governments of this world have for some time been using their power to oppress, but the cry of this prayer will bring back righteousness to the throne of government, and then every upright heart will proclaim loudly with great joy, exceeding joy, rejoicing. Then thirdly, what is the right of praying? Verses 8 to 23. Well, firstly, he's praying help in verses 16 to 19. The writer is praying for God to judge injustice and avenge the oppressed of verse 2. But not only that, as he is also crying out for help, verse 16. Who is going to rise up against the evildoers? He obviously needs help and his friends are not there for him. So he calls out to God for help. The soul is safest and at rest after calling all others to assist and no one comes. And the soul is safest when total trust for help is upon God. The day the church sees error and evil coming into her, and faithful godly leaders seem to be a minimum, and fewer still are bold enough to stand up and defy the enemies of truth. Our great hope is that the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, is with us, 
and he will call out his champions to defend him. Are you one of God's champions? Is your foot slipping? Are you feeling weak at this moment in time and need help? Well, take courage. We feel our weakness and see our danger, and in fear and trembling we cry out, cry out to Yahweh God. Our natural sin, our inbred sin, is dragging us down and we need help. God, in his supreme mercy and love, helps us, and our joy is that his mercy endures forever, and is always available to help us in times of danger to support us. From my sinful and proud thoughts, my thoughts of sorrow, my cares, my conflicts, I must hurry to the Lord. This is the cry of the writer. Yet are we the same? The Lord alone is consoling, and yet not only consoling, but delighting in me. How sweet are the comforts of God the Comforter, the indwelling Holy Spirit, who without feeling joy can think about eternal love, trustworthy promises, a covenant, the coming to earth of the Redeemer in Jesus Christ, the risen Saviour and his next coming again. The little world within us that is full of confusion and strife becomes calm when we rely upon Jesus to say, Peace be with you. And then the writer also says, Can a, can a corrupt government be allied with you? God enters into no promises with those governments who are corrupt, and he gives no help to unrighteous laws. No assistance does he give. They might legalize robbery and violence, and then say in defense, It is the law of the land, yet it is still evil and wicked. No justice, no injustice is permanent, for God will not set his seal upon it, nor have any fellowship with it. And therefore, one day, one fine day, it will fall. An example of this was the slaughter of the Jews during the Second World War. The German church, in general, allied itself along with the laws and decrees of Adolf Hitler and his government, and changed its theology to that of white supremacy. We all know that the plans of the Nazis failed. Or take, for example, South Africa, which up until recently had a policy of separating whites and others. For a long time, the mainstream church there held as its theology that this was true. Since then, however, the walls of apartheid have fallen, and the church has confessed this sin to God. No evil regime lasts very long in the light of eternity. The unrighteous join together in order to attack the righteous. The guilty join each other to attack the innocent. No crime is too great for them. Yet, yet, yet there is good news. Let the ungodly join together. The psalmist is not afraid, but he sweetly sings that the, the rock upon which he stands is the Jehovah God, Yahweh, who is his fortress and refuge. Firm is the rock of God's love and justice, and in him we go for shelter. He is indeed a tremendous lover, as if in answer to his own question of verse 16, who will rise up for me against the wicked and evildoers, 
The final verse gives us an answer. The natural result of oppression against the innocent, the poor, or the righteous is the total destruction of the ungodly. The great God who is judge will repay sins and destroy wickedness. While the bread and food they have stolen is in their mouth, God's wrath and anger will slay them. God himself visibly and noticeably visits them and reveals his own power to them. To briefly recapitulate, what have we seen so far? Firstly, we have seen that God can be and indeed is both a lover and also a judge. Secondly, we have seen the type of people that the writer faced in his battle against evil. He constantly called upon them to wake up and see sense and repent of their sins before God destroys them. Thirdly, we have seen that we should, by faith, read the present in the light of the future and end the song with a powerfully strong note. So now, what can we say in conclusion to this this Psalm 94? Firstly, that our vision of God should not be too small. We need to acknowledge him as a great lover, but also as a terrifying judge. Remember Hebrews 10 verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To quote John Stott, God is not at odds with himself, however much it may appear to us that he is. He is the God of peace, of inner tranquility, not a God of turmoil. True, we may find it difficult to hold in our minds simultaneously the images of God as the judge who must punish evildoers and of the lover who must find a way to forgive them. Yet he is both, and both at the same time. Secondly, can we rightly pray in the light of the New Testament for the vengeance of God to come down against the ungodly? No, we cannot, for then we would be no better than those who do not know him. The vengeance of God has already come down upon one man. That man was Jesus Christ. One day his judgment will fall, and it is from this terrible event that this man is our deliverer. This man, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, for you, for me, and for all our enemies, took upon himself the full vengeance of God. At that moment, when he took the anger of God upon himself so that that no one may face the judgment of God without first having the opportunity to turn to him in repentance of sins. At that moment on the cross when he said, Why have you forsaken me, O God? When the first time in all eternity he was separated from his father. And we shall be praying for the governments of this world that abuse the widows, the orphans, and the innocents of today. That these these governments will see their errors and turn away from them. And not only that, we should pray that the members of these governments will turn to God in 
awe and wonder to worship him. One day, one glorious day, all men and women will be called upon before God to give an account of themselves to him. And if they do not know this Jesus as their saviour, indeed if you do not know this Jesus as your saviour, then God will cast them and you from his holy presence. As Christians, we should pray that godly men and women will become members of the governments of the world in order to help protect the innocent and the righteous, that leaders will be raised up who know God personally in order to stop the abuse of the poor, the innocent, the widows and the unrighteous. And then thirdly, even in the face of abuse and persecution, turn to the living God for comfort, protection and help regardless of the circumstances. Too often we rely on ourselves or other people for strength in times of trouble. It is God and God alone who can help us and it is God alone who will destroy the evil in the world. The judgment of evil, according to Psalms, is a time for universal rejoicing. Psalm 67 verse 4, Psalm 96, 12 to 13, Psalm 35 verse 24. Let us rejoice together when good overcomes evil in this world. And finally, let us pray and cry out in anger against the suffering and evil in this world. And not only pray about it, but do something about it. We, as Christians, should be as light and salt to the world of darkness and evil. What will you do about being light and salt to your world? The world where the innocent are suffering, the widows and orphans are abandoned and murdered. Thank you.